Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we're joined by Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan has over 28 years experience working for the Metropolitan Police in the UK with much of that time in senior leadership roles. Jonathan's police leadership required him to work with diverse communities and businesses across a number of government departments, including the Home Office and Mayor of London's Office and internationally. He has considerable experience in prevention strategies, legislative changes, working with vulnerable groups, and partnership work. During his police career, Jonathan obtained a law degree at the University of Westminster Law School and an economics and cultural studies degree at the School of African and Asian Studies University of Sussex. Jonathan recently retired from the police service in 2020 after a traumatic experience of workplace bullying, a period of his life that impacted on him considerably. He now dedicates much of his time to education and challenging workplace bullying behaviors, which he says is entirely preventable and creating positive workplace culture. Jonathan lives in Cornwall and has also established a business running holiday cottages, which allows him to pursue the many outdoor activities he enjoys both on and off the river. Good morning, Jonathan, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning, Mary. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. So glad to have you here on this beautiful wintry day. How How is it where you are? Uh, wintry, wintry, very <laughs> grey clouds. Um, I live in a, a lovely part of England now, um, in in um, Cornwall, which is down in the southwest tip of of England, um, and we get a very sort of um, very very temperate climate here, which is great. But between November and February, the weather's not good. We get lots of rain coming in from the Atlantic, but the rest of the year is really good. So I just have to look forward to March. <laughs> yeah, where I live in West Tennessee, uh, we get crazy weather all the time. But last night. Now, not last night, but the night before, we had such enormous storms that they canceled school during, for the rain, which has never happened. I've lived here 20 years, and it was just so chaotic. They were like, okay, the kids are not going to school. It's just too weird out there. We we canceled school for ice mainly, but it was yeah. the weird weather and the rain. So, yeah. I, I drove up, um, I think the last time we spoke, I said that I drove drove up this summer through from the Florida Keys up to New York and crisscrossed across the, you know, Florida and the Carolinas and, you know, and and um, into Tennessee, etc. And um, some of the storms at night, you know, you'd have scorching hot weather and clear blue skies. And then about half five in the evening, it was just lightning everywhere. Yes. And, and the rain was so intense. <laughs> and then you'd wake up to sunshine again the next morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, let's get started. Will you let's begin with you telling us your work history, starting from the very first job you ever had? Okay, so that was a long time ago, but I think my very first job um, was a part-time job um, working in a supermarket about the about the age of fourteen, stacking shelves. You know, I used to do it on a Saturday, um, and then um, I when I was younger, I didn't really. I was, you know, I'm fairly bright, but I wasn't really very interested in school. Um, so I didn't leave with very many qualifications. So I, I found myself um, taking up an apprenticeship as, a, as an electrician, and which I could, there's a, a job that I could get with a future, with um, with the qualifications, the, short, the few qualifications I had. Um, and I trained as an electrician for th- three years. 
um, the pay wasn't really good. So during that time, I had several jobs. Um, I worked in McDonald's and became a part-time floor manager. Um, and I had some, I worked in um, some bars, um, you know, working behind bars, et cetera. As I, when I, once I got to the age of 18. Um, and then um, at the age of 20, I, um, I joined the um, police force in London. And that really has been my working life up until the point that I retired in April 2020. So why policing? Um, I think I was I think I was looking for, um, you know, a, a bit of excitement. I, I was brought up in um, Stratford-upon-Avon, um, which everyone tells me is absolutely lovely. And, and yes, it, it, it probably is, unless you've been brought up there. Um, I, I was thoroughly bored. Um, with with Stratford and Avon um, by the time I was that age and I wanted to go go to a city um, which is why I didn't apply for any of the police um, forces that were um, more local to where I've been brought up um, there, there was the, it was the real diversity it was the opportunity you know to to see see life um how it is in you know from from you know from the poorest communities to the richest communities um i like working with people um i enjoyed meeting people um as i say there, there was the excitement as well um and it was a good steady career that i could take um so yeah i, I joined it um i I've having i i think at that age, as a, a young age, I joined, when I joined, I think I was rather naive about some of the things. Um, you know, I didn't realise when I joined, for instance, that I had to, only had to work 30 years and I'd get a very generous pension. <laughs> I didn't I didn't realise that at all. Um, but it was, um, yeah, it was a really fulfilling um, career. And what it, it gave me in, in those early years, what I needed, which was, discipline because when I joined the police the the training was sort of about five and a half months um and it was it was almost based on a sort of quasi military type training you know we had to march everywhere in between our different classes we had to do PT etc we had to have be, we were dressed in uniforms that had to be immaculate we, had, we were inspected in the morning etc punishments were handed out if your uniform or your shoes weren't you know wasn't immaculate or your shoes weren't shining etc um so that imposed that sort of I had that discipline imposed on me um which imposed the self in this self-discipline that I needed um and from there I really really um flourished I did really well with the exams and then having been in the police for a couple of years the police said to me you know you know you're brighter than your qualifications suggest and they got me into university, into law school. Um, and I went and did after that, I did another degree in economics and cultural studies. So it was really, really, it it was really um, fulfilling for me. Um, and I wouldn't probably be the person, you know, if I'd stayed as an electrician, I probably wouldn't be the person that I am today. You know, I've seen the world from from my work as well. You know, traveled the world um, with my work and, and in my personal life as well. So... So when you think about your history um, and your career with the police force and or even as being an electrician or um, at the grocery store, what is the best boss you've ever worked for? And what was it about that person that made them the best? I think probably when I was um, a, a police sergeant and it was an inspector that I worked for, he was um, 
he was a very, he was a huge huge Scotsman you know in 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 stature and in personality um he took over the team that I'd only been on for a couple of weeks and I was newly promoted and he was um he was quite frightening for everyone um he had a very broad Glaswegian accent accent and he sounded quite aggressive and he was very quick to come in and set his standards and make clear you know of the standards he expected and he was very clear about what he thought of um people for the you know for individuals say for me you know very early on had a one-to-one meeting and then he told me what he perceived as any strengths I had and what he perceived my weaknesses were etc um which was quite intimidating at the time because I'd never faced anything like that but actually from that point onwards he was very very generous in taking time to nurture you you knew you could always go to him to seek advice um um he 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 gave gave me some really really good advice you know about something like the police as well it's very very you have to be very very careful you know because you know you could have your nor we all know what happens with office parties you know and some things can go wrong and you know and complaints are then taken back into work but he he gave me some very very good advice as well and said you know you you're now in a, a supervisory position and actually never leave yourself as the only supervisor as out on a work social event you know because if anything goes wrong you're going to be the person is going to be held accountable for it etc but but just within within the work base and he he so he was a, he was a leader but he also was he was a mentor all the time and he was very interested in people's welfare um and whilst he had very high standards um and and expected people to work hard for him he was also very very kind you know if people had issues going on in their own life etc etc he was very quick to say you know take some time off etc you know get things sorted out you know i'll stay in contact with you etc etc so yeah he was he was really good that's what i you know i just have very very fond memories and i i I think as becoming becoming eventually progressing to a more senior leadership position he's one of the people that i took some very very um um how can i say that he grounded my future leadership style and and management i find that really interesting because sometimes i think leaders people struggle with setting standards and holding people accountable because they they think it'll be too intense or it'll put people off or it people will feel demoralized or they'll want to leave or whatever but i think quite the opposite when we set high standards that are are attainable that are reasonable um and then, as you said, that lovely word are generous with us, our leaders, when they're generous and help us to achieve or um, are caring, then it's, it feels safe. It's like this is a safe environment because these are the standards. They're not unreasonable. They're going to be held. But I'm in an environment that helps me to actually meet these standards. And I want to work here because who doesn't want to work for a place that is functioning well and um, and the the standards are high. Yes, that's right. And I I think much of that boils down to self-awareness and communication as well. You know, having that self-awareness of, of your impact on others, Mm -hmm. but also communication. If you, you can, you can say as a, as a, in a, in a leadership position, you, sometimes you have to say things that might not necessarily be popular, 
But if you have the self-awareness of how you say things and how how it may impact on people and you're prepared also to to listen to people's points of views and take them into consideration demonstrate that you take them into consideration not saying it's my way or the highway etc um then you really can bring people on board and it's really i think most people feel very very comfortable um when they they've given a framework within which which they can work and you know the standards uh, are familiar to them rather than you know Perhaps later on, finding it, you know, with a leader that hasn't been so clear, being um, reprimanded for doing something wrong, etc. When no one's actually told you what the standards are until <laughs> you've done something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, communication obviously is key, and unfortunately, so many times people think they've communicated because they sent an email, or it's a part of your job description, or well, this is what it means to be professional, so you should know. And yet that's not what communication is at all. It's everything that you mentioned. It's how our leaders set the atmosphere, how they communicate daily in the sense that they're interested in us, they empower us, they trust us, and they set clearly, this is what you're, this is what good looks like. You know, the whole package, that's communication. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And after that, I, 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 I experienced some good leaders and I experienced some very bad leaders as well. Um, and actually the whole impact on your, your working day, you know, I used to commute. I, I lived whilst I worked in London, I lived in Brighton, which is about a, um, an hour's commute on the train to work and on the, on the way back. And, you know, when I worked with the, the good leaders, I'd be sat on my laptop on the way into work and on the way back, you know, because I'd been enabled and I'd been empowered and I'd been inspired. And I'd be sat on the laptop because I got so many ideas about how I was going to take things forward, you know, et cetera, because I had my own unit working, working below me. Um, and then when I had bad leaders, I used to sit on the train sort of just glad I got through another day. You know, mm -hmm. it was, yeah absolutely absolutely crucial i think the one thing that came from that is all the way through all the way through my leadership journey within the organization within the police because quite frankly they didn't really offer too much leadership training <laughs> so most of my journey in in developing in my personal development within leadership was observing what was good and worked well and what was bad and work didn't work well um, and then trying to harness that in my own um, style um, of work and delivering. You know, I think that's what most people do. They pick it up by osmosis. They, you know, if they're self-aware, they say they see what worked and worked for them or their colleagues on what didn't, what was detrimental or having an opposite effect. Um, and I think that's just very natural. But I think we could do more than that by actually not just leaving it up to chance and if whether or not that person had a good model in the back that they can reference, but you know, really investing in our leaders uh, because it is so crucial. We hear this and it's just so true. And you just echoed it that we don't you typically leave bad organizations. We leave bad leaders because you can work in the same organization and it be a wonderful experience because of the people around you and your leadership. And then you could be moved to another arm of it and it just be terrible experience given the atmosphere that is set by the leaders in, in that part of an organization. Yeah. And, 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 and tied into that August, and I saw this happening within the police as well. 
organizations do not assess people properly to see if they're fit for leadership you know there were within the police there there are all sorts of issues around people rising through through the ranks and promotion you know to be promoted at any rank you needed sponsorship of your direct line manager which meant that you either acquiesced or emulated their behaviors Um, otherwise you wouldn't get that sponsorship and sometimes Mm -hmm. those behaviors weren't good Um, but then you know um, and people sometimes would be sponsored because they were good at the job they were doing now not not necessarily good at leading at at a more strategic level um, and you'd see people who were really promoted above their capability. And then they're, because they were promoted above their capability, their behaviour was probably um, fell um, short, far short of um, the way, it, you know, in the way that they'd interact with people, fell short of, far short of how they might have interacted when they were in more junior positions because the stress started to impact on their behavior as well. So the way they spoke with people, the way they dealt with people, the way they communicated with people. So not just, it's not just training. I think lead organizations need to be really, really um, careful about their selection of leadership. And you've heard of, if you heard of the Peter principle. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that, that, yeah, that is the Peter principle. I do, but please explain it to our, our listeners and tell us your story. Okay, so this is just my simple way of explaining the Peter Principle. If you've got a factory that's producing yellow ducks, you know, the type that bob around in a child's bath, etc. And they're all supposed to have orange beaks. So when they come out of the, the, the plastic press machine that makes the rubber or the metal rubber machine that makes the ducks, they come out onto a conveyor belt and you have 10 people on the production line on the conveyor belt, all with a little pot of orange paint and a brush. And they're, brush- they're brushing all the, be- the, the beaks to these birds so that when they get to the end, they're finished and they can be packed in boxes ready for sale. And suddenly um, they need a new supervisor for the production line. And the person they give the job to is the person who's their best rubber duck beak painter. <laughs> Not necessarily, purely because that person is the best painter of beaks on ducks. Not necessarily because they have any leadership skills, etc. You know, um, which which means you lose a highly efficient beak um, painter, but you also perhaps impact on the the performance of others because you've just given them a really bad leader as well. You know, so but yeah, it's just my simple story that I use for explaining it. Um, it's a good example for us to think about when we look at bad managers, they didn't get there on their own. There's a system behind them. No. There's a system that we say, if you want to advance, you get promoted. That means that you're now a manager. Why is that the only path? Not everybody is fitted to that. It doesn't speak to their strengths. Um, It does. Therefore, it is not going to be good for them or the people under them or the organization. We need to have a variety of legitimate paths where people um, are get to advance within an organization if they're going to stay, but not necessarily this managerial path. Yeah, I, I I managed I managed people over the years who had specialities that that they could perform far far better than than I could, you know, um, because that's where their strengths lay, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I you know I could openly say I couldn't even do the job that you're doing, you know, so because some of the people say we were forensically examining computers, you know, for evidence, etc. I wouldn't know where to start, you know because it's a highly complex technical job and I wouldn't know where to start. 
but I could still manage the unit. I could make sure that, you know, the, the, the staff that worked in there, their needs were met and that was, you know, their personal needs, et cetera, um, um, and listening to them, but also looking about what sorts of, you know, uh, you know, resources and equipment they needed, you know, and what difficulties they're encountering and how I could, how I could manage and, and perhaps improve that, you know, and that's where my skills led, but, you know, so we all, we're all suited to different things. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, Jonathan, a lot of your work right now is in raising awareness about workplace bullying. Will you tell us about that? What led to your work and what you're doing? Yes, yeah, sure. So um, I'm trying to think now. It was probably about uh, now. It's probably about 10 years ago. Um, I was I, I was a detective superintendent. I've been a detective superintendent for several years at that point. And within the organisation at the rank, you didn't get any choice about where you were posted. And I was posted into um, a command within the Metropolitan Police where um, I had worked previously when I was a detective chief inspector. Um, I knew that command had a real problem with nepotism. There were a lot of people who had been there for a long time. You know, generally within the police, you're moved around from department to department, et cetera, especially in specialist roles that like that. And I knew that that culture existed. Now, when I joined that 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 area, um, I was given a, a unit that had a lot of um, interest and pressure from government about driving forward and progressing that work, you know, and prioritizing that work, which a lot of these people who'd been in that command um, were unfamiliar with, et cetera, um, you know, particularly my bosses and the difficulty and, and a lot of it involved working with different communities and um and um local authorities and other partnership agencies which they were they were they were unfamiliar with um so i i joined this role and i could in, instantly see there were some things that needed changing you know with the status quo around how the the, the whole command operated and i challenged the status quo around around those things but also there were some really poor leadership above me you know um i had a boss um i i restructured i had probably about 150 staff in total and i restructured the way that worked and i lost some of the managers you know through natural ways it's not just making them redundant but they they wanted to move on and i didn't replace them because say for one inspector i could take on another two const police constables and they were the people i needed to be working out on the ground so um, I made some of those savings um, ready to recruit and, and then found that the boss I had had decided because I'd made those savings, um, he he was going to take those staff away. He, he was taking those positions away, but he didn't tell me. I found out when I went to Human Resources saying, right, I've made all these savings. Can I recruit these new people now that I desperately need for my work? Oh, no, you know, because my boss had said, no, I'm having those for something else. But no communication with me, you know, about whether I needed them or et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there were lots of sort of little aggressions. He he never had time to speak to me or help me, wasn't really particularly interested in the type of work that I was doing, even though I was spending a lot of my time in 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 with the home office and and having to write reports or, you know, the commissioner was having to, you know, to brief the, the commissioner when he was going for meetings with the prime minister at the time, et cetera. Um, he just wasn't interested. He was interested in 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 claiming the successes. So I remember having to go in for an urgent meeting with the commissioner the day before um, 
the uh, the commissioner had to meet the prime minister once and I went in with him and he called me down to this is my boss to tell him everything had happened about half an hour before we went into that meeting and then we got to the the door he said right you're not to say anything unless you're directly asked I'm going to do all the talking <laughs> yeah, and this was someone who had no interest um there was a point then when he was promoted temporarily up to the the oh no and and one of the issues I had as well is he was giving me performance appraisals um well he's giving me a score and I was sort of saying right so you've given me a score on this performance appraisal I didn't have an issue with the score but I was like I'm really interested in what my development needs are because that's it's a performance and development review you're supposed to have your development you know some development um put into there and he couldn't tell me and I was I sort of said the first time well how can you score if you don't know what my strengths and weaknesses are and my development needs how how are you able to score me effectively you know so he's very nervous giggle and stuff um a year later i faced exactly the same thing and the same thing he couldn't tell me in my performance review and there was some other sort of things going on then he was temporarily promoted and there was um someone who'd been a peer of mine not someone i'd worked but you know at the same level who came in and had actually been quite obstructive in the work that I was trying to do in integrating with the other commands because they and he'd quite been quite obstructive. And the first day he took his place, it took his place. I was called down for an ambush meeting, and he came in and said, um, two of your the managers who work below you have come to complain about the way you speak to them, speak, speak to them. Um, and they're considering leaving. I'm, and I was absolutely taken aback, you know, because I'm, I'd never been really someone with hierarchy, you know, the rank I had, people were supposed to call you sir, et cetera. And I would always say, no, my name's Jonathan, you know, et cetera. Well, a very sort of friendly way of speaking with people. I would challenge people if they weren't working properly. So I said to him, well, can you tell me what I've said? No, it's, you know, they don't want to be identified. Well, could you tell me who it is? So that at least I could go and speak. No, they don't want to be identified. I said, well, if you don't tell me what, it, what, what I've apparently done, you don't tell me who it is, how am I going to fix it? Work it out for yourself. Meeting finished. And then we had this happen again and again. I'd upset someone else and, you know, and wouldn't tell me what the specifics were, et cetera. Um, and finally, um, I was called down for an ambush meeting saying, um, my previous boss, who was now a boss above him, he said, he, he this boss that I now had said, the boss, the old boss had said, I had to leave if I wanted promotion. And I, my response to that was, um, I I don't want promotion. I'm enjoying the work that I'm doing, etc. And the conversation finished. He then phoned me three days later and said, he says, you've got to leave. Um, I think it's because you were involved in briefing. You decided to go and brief the mayor. Um, around some work that the Home Office and Security Service didn't want discussing. And I said, well, actually, you know, that wasn't me. That was someone who's far higher who took me along, you know, far senior to any of us who took me along, who's now left the organisation. And then a day later, I got a paper copy through telling me um, that I needed to move for um, for operation further development and further operational experience you know i was thinking well, this is a bit rich it's one is i've been here less time than most people here i've actually probably in in diversity of the type of work that i'm dealing with you know an, an operational work 
work, I'm dealing with a far wider diversity than other people. I've got far more diverse experience within my career than many others. Um, and also I've been asking for development needs for the last two years and haven't been able to give me any. And I just sat down and I thought, you know, all of that. And it, then at this point it reflected and I just noticed all of these nuances of this bullying. And eventually what was happening with the ambush meetings, et cetera, was gaslighting because it had eroded my confidence. And I was almost at a point of nearly breaking down at that point. So I asked to go and see one of the most senior officers because of the level of seniority of myself and then the people above me. I asked to see one of the most senior officers in the organisation. I emailed her and said, I think I'm being bullied. I'd like to come and speak to you. Really, all I wanted to do was to, you know, to put a stop to it. Um, and when I, uh, she came back and said, oh, we take bullying very seriously. I've put you in the diary to see me in a week. So when I went to see her, it became quite apparent that she'd spent the week speaking to the bullies. <laughs> and every point I raised, her response um with a um you know a, a cold stare and a, a i'd say a voice you know a voice and a look of contempt was that's your view that's your view that's your view that's your view and i, I, I i've described that meeting and i wrote to her afterwards and said i came into that meeting a broken man well, with the way that she's treated me uh you know um i left there not only broken but destroyed because what i faced was i faced this that's your view that's your view that's your view eventually I dried up I couldn't say anymore because it, it was just too painful with just being it just being discarded and and not being taken seriously um and she said have you finished and I said yeah and she said well everything I've heard you're the problem um she was filling in gaps some of the things where I pointed out were the real contradictions so she was filling in gaps and looking up and then, well blah 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 and filling in gaps etc um with unreasonable suggestions um what i experienced there was institution was what i would call two things a further form of gaslighting um darvo deny attack reverse victim offender where it was denied that there was any bullying attack of myself about myself and then reversing the roles of of the victim of the and the offender and also institutional betrayal because i'd been in an organization at that point for 25 years where I, I, they have values. There's a police code of ethics nationally. Um, and there's an also um, a, a workplace bullying policy. <laughs> None of that counted for anything. So, and I said to her in that meeting, all of those policies, um, they're like the glossy, the glossy coat of cut front cover of a magazine. And unfortunately, when you turn the first page, the contents are very, very different. You know, and I, I believe many, many organisations do this. They stick policies and uh, they, they publish policies. They stick posters on the wall, etc. And some of those those people in leadership positions who do that then believe that that's the job done. They don't actually live and breathe those values and policies that they advertise. Um, and so um, gradually after that, um over the next sort of 12 months, I just found myself breaking down. I lost confidence in dealing with staff, any kind of issues or difficult people I lost confidence confidence with. I think a large part of that was the gaslighting at first about all these rumours that, you know, I, I'd upset this person. 
this is stuff that had never happened before in my career. And I, you know, I built some really good relationships and had some really good managers who'd appreciated my work. Um, so, and, you know, and even when I moved, I had members of staff saying, can we come and work for you in your new unit? You know, so it couldn't have been. So, yeah, but I psychologically it harmed me. Um, and eventually I um, I sort of broke down um, and had to go sick. And um, it was a slow process of me, you know, just going downhill hill on this slippery slope. Um, I That was in 2015. I then spent the next sort of three, three and a half years off sick for lengthy periods or coming back to work and not being able to, I couldn't even concentrate on trying to write someone and say, here's, look, here's, you don't even have to manage anyone, you know, in your recovery. Here's a, just go and write this report for us. Well, I couldn't concentrate, you know, my, I was too busy ruminating over all of those issues. I had CBT counselling. I, I saw psychiatrists. I had special a special program at the local mental health um, hospital trust. Um, and eventually, I saw a psychiatrist that said, "I think in twenty nineteen, I saw a different psychiatrist, and um, and I was fortunate because I think the the psychiatrist I've been seeing." was an organizational psychiatrist and I think that particular psychiatrist wasn't working and I so I've been scheduled to see a different psychiatrist and she said to me it's quite obvious that you're suffering from trauma because the first psychiatrist said oh it's just had a fallout with them some bosses at work give them four or five weeks off sick and he'll be fine to come back to work and you know 12 months later same psychiatrist is saying you know well you know he just needs to be indoctrinated back into the working environment slowly you know a graded response but it wasn't working um and uh i then got trauma counseling but at that point well actually and I, I was ready to take early retirement um you know not that i was going to get a, a better pension or etc i was going to actually going to lose financially but i decided for my health i was going to leave the organization um, because I couldn't work properly it wasn't fair and the taxpayer wasn't fair on myself and my own health either you know I was, I was suspicious of everyone I was suspicious of the organization the last boss that I had said look before you leave you know because I had a few more years left before I'd completed my 30 years or a couple of years left before I completed my 30 years service he said please just go and see the psychiatrist one more one more time and see and this was the psychiatrist and said yes trauma counseling so he said to me, stay on, promise me you'll stay on until you've had your trauma counselling, which took six months, and then make a decision where you're going to leave. So I stayed on for the trauma counselling, and it was really, really helpful. But at the end of it, I decided best to leave, and I, I left the organisation um, early. It was quite a significant fin financial cost for me, and my pension as well, in the, um, I would, the lump sum, I took probably... Um, I would say about two fifths of the lump sum I'd have had if I'd stayed on for another year and a half. Mm. So it, it, so we're talking in hundreds of thousands of pounds, but you know you can't buy good health. Yeah. So after that, um, as part of my recovery and to help with my the rumination that I was going through, I st I'd, I'd started to read books around workplace bullying and gaslighting, etc., etc., trying to understand you know, the whole process was happening because 
rumination mm -hmm. it's just i've got questions about all the time about every single incident and it was i i could find myself you know digging in the garden and just standing there for half an hour with the, the spade in the ground and i just lost all track of time because i'd been ruminating it was that that sort of um engrossing so i started to study i uh, started to read a lot started to understand um i really started to understand what had happened to me the full process etc and i thought well you know if i'd known a lot of this stuff at the time and recognized what was happening um i could have prevented a lot of this at an earlier stage so um i did then decided after i'd retired i couldn't have done this while i was still working but after i retired i was then straight onto linkedin and i started making posts and most of my posts aren't about my organizational experience but they're the, the whole purpose around them are because i've never wanted to look like it's it's revenge you know or you know etc or trying to disgrace the organization what well, my my raise and detra for doing it is to um is to um, raise awareness, one for people who might find themselves in the same position, for others that may see it happening to colleagues so that they can possibly support them, recognise what's happening and supporting, but also to educate leaders about the costs and the implications and the harm of, of workplace bullying and gaslighting, you know, because psychological harm to an individual sometimes can be far more harmful than physical harm. You know, when you suffering from psychological harm i mean it can lead to suicide um but also this physical illness can be a consequence of psychological harm as well so i just wanted to raise awareness and um you know i get now probably over the course of a week i probably get two or three um messages across linkedin from people saying you don't know me i'm not connected to you i can't afford to be because of my work etc etc but I've been following all of your posts and thank you so much. They've helped me so much over the last three months through because of what I'm experiencing, et cetera, et cetera, uh, which is really, really rewarding. Um, so, and I've become involved with a, a, a campaign called Stop Hurt at Work, which is a UK based campaign where we're looking to try and bring in some legislative changes, et cetera, and, you know, and to raise awareness, et cetera, you know, to, because, and it's, you know, I think it's the same in many countries, you know, most of the US, some states have some kind of legislation around workplace bullying in the US, but most states don't. The UK doesn't have legislation around workplace bullying, etc. So in the UK, we have a government who says we should we take workplace bullying very, very seriously. It shouldn't happen, etc. But we think the best people to deal with it are um the employers themselves by bringing about cultural change and we trust them to do that so the contradiction to that is we have a quality legislation um somehow the government haven't trusted employers um with their quality legislation you know to build a culture where a quality legislation is needed and equality people can be treated equally no matter what you know their sex or um you know or ethnicity or you know sexual preference or age um that isn't you know the government haven't trusted employers around that and neither have they in health and safety where we also have legislation um so yes it's that sort of it's that point that just sticks there and really you know the, there's some things that could be put into legislation and i'm not trying to make you know none of us are trying to make this um 
um, free for free free for all for people to take litigation. But there should be some standards employed on employers. Perhaps you know anyone who takes on a a, a leadership position should um, do trauma informed awareness training, etc. You know, as they'd have to do health and safety or you know awareness training. Um, there's those sort of things. I'm not trying to make it litigants paradise. You know, I don't think litigation is the best way of dealing it. In fact, for me, I didn't want to take that because I was traumatized. I didn't want to go through, you know, through the, the stresses and strains of ending up in court, etc. Right. I, I agree with this idea that, you know, having a law is very important because sometimes that's the only way you can get people to do the right thing. Sometimes. Mm. And it can help people say, oh, this is serious. And so we need to get on it. But what one thing I really appreciate about, appreciate about the work that you do and what you post on LinkedIn is that hopefully leaders will get the message that it's not just, oh, you're having a bad day or, oh, this is something trivial, but the real cost, the real psychological and physical toll that bullying takes on the individual, which then rebounds to their organization and also to the person's individual home life and into the community. So it's this rippling effect when people are harmed. And I would hope that every employer should want their employees to leave better than when they found them, not leave because they're broken. Yeah. But so many times yeah. people leave in an organization because they're broken in some way, whether it's the small but not insignificant, I don't feel cared for, to the the harm that can happen when people are, are, are really bullied. And that harm compounds to the next place they go, the next place they go, if they, if they don't deal with it. And even if they deal with it, when you deal with the trauma, it is now part of your life story. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, they say, well, you know, once you've had trauma, you can never get rid of it completely. Um, I mean, as as times progress, there's fewer and fewer things that trigger me. I very rarely get triggered, but sometimes, sometimes I can meet. There are the naysayers, and you know, a lot of the I get a lot of support to my posts, but occasionally I get a naysayer and I come in it, and you know, I have to, I see something, and it can trigger me, and I have to say, I have to walk away from this before I respond to it you know because all of the emotions come back etc yeah so the trauma is always there the the impact as you say as well with around around the family and stuff you know um when this was happening to me i mean i have, I have a daughter now who's 14 when this when this happened you know we're talking about 2014 geez. so you know between 10 and uh, she's 14 now so between 10 and eight years ago between the ages of four and six her my wife had to face me coming home not really communicating because I was ruminating. Right. Um, yeah, there's there are, there are those issues. Also, you have to look at the fellow employees as well who are there, you know, and, um, you know, what do they see? Yeah. They see a bully being protected and they see see those behaviours being normalised and accepted. So the bully can then, bully says, well, it's okay because the boss has said it's okay. Right. So they continue to perpetuate those, those behaviours. Another interesting point as well is, you know, for, that I try to make to organisations, you know, to leaders in organisations, especially organisations like the police, etc. In the UK, the police service have had quite, you know, there have been some inquiries recently right. to my in my former employer where they've said, you know, several employee high profile inquiries have come back and they have said the police service has a culture of racism, misogyny. 
and bullying. So the new commissioner has come in and he's stumped in and said, I'm going to deal with racism and misogyny. He seems to have forgotten bullying because racism, misogyny, you know, sexual sexual harassment, etc., um, things like that are all unlawful. Bullying isn't. So he's forgotten that. But the thing is, when you normalize those behaviors, you know, a leader who thinks, well, this behavior is OK, is going to treat everyone like that. Now, some many people may not be able to take an action um, because bullying isn't unlawful. But those who are protected in a protected class under the equality legislation, you're going to say, I've been treated unfairly. I'm going to take an action because I'm in a protected class under the equality legislation. So what's going to happen is you're still going to end up with court, court cases. They're going to hit the headlines saying the police p- police leaders have discriminated or they've allowed this sort of harassment, et cetera, et cetera, within the workplace. So unless you deal with those, you know, the baseline of, of challenging those poor behaviours, doesn't matter how much they say they're going to work on trying to remove racism or misogyny, they are still going to get course cases. So they're going to come up highlighting that because of the bad behavior that's been normalized. Yeah. Part of the work that I do is transformational culture, right? Going into an organization and having part of your strategic plan and narrative of dealing with conflicts at work because conflicts are normal. They're going to happen. That's just normal. So how do we deal with it so that we manage the conflict instead of having unmanaged conflict? And One place that I really want employers to start is by educating everybody, empowering everybody so that if I have a problem with somebody else's behavior, I am supported, expected, and trained to know how to have those difficult conversations. And then really investing in our line managers, you know, the people who are closest to the vast um, people, but all of the managers really trained and empowered and expected, not just one time or not just once a year, but continually as a talking point and more than that, to know how to deal quickly, swiftly, justly in a people-centered way that is win-win restorative. Um, Everybody Mm -hmm. loses if we don't find a way to treat everybody at work with dignity and respect. And I really think that having a change of mind where the baseline is treating everyone with dignity and respect is a very low standard because I think that's common decency. But we should want our organizations to do more. We should ex- we should expect our organizations to invest in all the people there so that they flourish. If they flourish, our it's just, yeah. I mean, it's good business. It's good for the bottom line, let, let alone it's yeah. good. I mean, why? I think it's most important because it's good for the people. And when people are healthier, their families, their communities, their organizations, everybody is better when we treat everybody with, with kindness. And that is, yes. you know, that is good business practice. It's good human 101. And so the goal of flourishing, we do that by taking people's mistakes by people's um, issues seriously and not engage in magical thinking, just sweeping it under the rug. Oh, they should all be professionals. They should work it out. No, let's, let's work it out, deal with it and then move on. Yeah, no, you, you, you're, you're, you're quite right. I mean, it's about, I I would say in the case of bullying, I mean, that's, that's, that's a scope for lots of different things as well, you know, within management issues, but within the case of bullying, I personally, wasn't looking for retribution you know I didn't want someone sacked or moved from their position 
I just wanted it to stop, right. you know, and this is where, you know, so as soon as you mention the word bullying, it's, oh, you know, there's a problem, you know, this is going to cause, you know, et cetera. I could lose my star play or my, you know, the lead, that manager's going, I could leave my perceived star, lose my perceived star player. No, it isn't. I wanted to stop. And, and if I was a, as a, as a leader, if I was approached about a problem, that uh, one of the managers is working below me is treating their staff I'd have a conversation I'd try to understand what it was and then I'd speak to the manager and I'd get their perspective you know and there's often two sides to a story so I would never necessarily be judgmental but I would make it clear to both of them the expectation around the standards so that they left saying look you know there's two sides to every story but I've made it clear to the other party this is what I expect of them and I'm making it clear to you now this is what I expect of you and once you've done that, you've drawn a baseline and reinforced it. So there are there are further reoccurrences. Yes, then we can have an investigation. And if 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 I find that it's broken that, then there may be disciplinary procedures, et cetera, et cetera. But it's about, you know, sometimes people bully because they don't even realize they're bullying, they're learned yes. behavior. Yeah. So it's about sitting on that baseline. So it's yeah, it's, it's really, really important. And you know, training. I've, this is one of the things that I'm absolutely adamant about. I think all staff should be trained to recognise what bullying is about. So mm-hmm. one is that they recognise what's happening to themselves and know what yes. to do about it. Yes. Two is that their peers can recognise it so they can support them or right. make them aware. By the way, I think you might be being bullied, etc. You know, let's see if we can challenge this together, or and to make the peers feel safer, and also to make managers aware of it, managers leaders aware of it so that they know what their responsibilities are but also i think those managers and hr leaders and hr need as i said this before need that trauma-informed approach because sitting as that senior leader did with me and going that's your response that's your response that's your response isn't trauma-informed you know yeah. it should have been you know well tell me more you know well, you know blah, blah, blah. you know is it difficult you know do you want to take a break etc they should be you know letting me speak they can make a judgment afterwards not make a judgment before i've got in the room and just be ready to <laughs> dismiss it you know because then that's institutional and the institutional betrayal having experienced it is even more harmful than the bullying or the gaslighting yeah absolutely everything i was familiar with for the previous 25 years had just gone out the window so my, my relationship with the organization I think that is such a strong point that when we educate everybody, we can, we make allies, right? We see uh, other people know, oh, I, I'm seeing this. How do you feel? What, what, how can I support you? And then also that we can recognize what's going on and we know what to do. So, and we can make it less scary for managers, especially, I agree with you. We should start with informal conversations. Every once in a while, a behavior is egregious and illegal and you know, if somebody's been assaulted or whatever it may be, and we just, that's, that gets dealt with. But as you said, some people don't know they're bullying because they think, you know, that's been their experiences of how you talk to people, or that's their experience of, and once they're told, hey, this is how this is coming across, or this is what's going on. That's not how we act here. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Nobody has ever said Mm -hmm. anything to me. And I think that's a part of seeing the humanity at everybody at work. Everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. It doesn't matter yeah. that person's behavior. It shouldn't change our behavior. And so we extend that conversation first and and then move from there. And if that person continues to exhibit this behavior, 
we have standards and then we go on from there because we don't allow that. It's not okay to um, allow that yeah. kind of behavior in a workplace. Yeah. And this is the best way because, you know, you're, you're then sending out a message to people as well saying, you know, we're a yes. learning organization, you know, and yeah. we, we, we've got room in this organization, you know, to learn and yeah. to make a difference, you know, um, and then, you know, and if people have got that, they're going to feel more comfortable about going into those meetings with those uncomfortable conversations as well, you know, and perhaps be prepared to be a bit more open as well about what's happened rather than being defensive, you know, if they can go in and say, well, you know, I suppose I did, you know, because they can then think, well, you know, I know, I know at the end of this conversation, I'm going to leave with some learning, <laughs> right. not, with being, not with being shouted at, etc. We're all always reading the room. We're always trying to figure out what does our organization really value? Uh, yeah. what What's really going to happen if I say what's happened to me or I say what's going on? Do they really want to listen? Do they really care? Is it just values on the wall or do they really live them out? And we're constantly looking for a confirmation by how other people are treated. So if I see yeah. a colleague having a problem and I see them try to resolve it and it it is resolved, I have this good feeling about my institution. Oh, mm. I really do believe this. And mm. my confidence goes up, my confidence goes up in my institution, my engagement, my belonging. So it's not just about the people in the conflict. Everybody else is watching and we're learning from what they actually do. And so if you want to increase um engagement, you want to increase um people uh high performance, so on and so forth, so all these metrics we say that we want treat your people well because everybody is watching as to how you're actually treating them when it's difficult happy people will be more motivated at work because they want to come to work because they're happy there rather than people who are scared and come to work just because they need a paycheck at the end of the week and, and they're scared they want that paycheck and they're i'm not saying anything because if i say anything i might lose that i'm a, i'm a you know subject to bullying myself and i could be without a paycheck at the end of the week Whereas if you come to work happy, like, you know, we're a team. Hey guys, you know, we're a team. Let's, you know, let's, let's try and be a creative. What, how can we do our job better? You know, that's the sort of enthusiasm that comes with it, you know? And I always found that was really powerful for me as well in leadership positions was to empower people, you know, yeah. you know, I have a very strategic mind, you know, as a, as a, as a senior leader, I had a very strategic mind and I could, I could look at problems and I could see the direction we needed to go to. But I'd often find someone, partly for their development, and say, look, you know, I think you're the best person to take us there. And, you know, this is where we are and this is where we need to be. I'm here to support, you know, if you have problems around resources or you come across obstructions, et cetera, come back. But this is your project. Take it away. Own it. And when it's when it's successful at the end, you know, it belongs to you. It isn't me who's done that. You know, it's your creation. It's your success, et cetera. But I am here in a more senior position to help you, to facilitate, it's to enable you if you come across obstructions, hurdles, et cetera, et cetera. And that really, you know, I mean, I had people coming back, you know, you know, from different from different jobs that I'd had, um, coming back and saying, you know, oh, I need some evidence for my next promotion. You know, will you sign off that it was me that achieved this, et cetera? Well, you know, I might have been the one that sort of had sown the seeds, but I wasn't going to stand in their way and say, well, that was my idea, et cetera, you know, because it was only my idea. They're the one that's then, you know, taken the seed and planted it and nurtured it and et cetera, et cetera, you know. So it was theirs. And that's that's how you you 
grow people, you know, like a plant, and embolden people, empower people, etc. And you know, they they enjoy success, their own success. Yeah, I, I've been seeing, I saw this several times recently about how people are just like plants, you know, we, yeah. we need some, uh, we need some water, we need some nutrients, we need some sunlight, you know, and we'll grow, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So Jonathan, yeah. as we end our conversation, do you have any advice when you think about the workplace of the future currently and the future, and you think about um, your child being out in the workplace, what do you want to see happen so that we can have workplaces that our people aren't left, people don't leave being broken, but rather can flourish. What kind of advice do you have? Well, I I have to say it boils down to values and culture. And you know, if 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 an an organisation has strong and positive values and a culture that is not only um, created by their leadership and and advertised by the leadership etc um but is actually lived and breathed by the 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 leadership and the leaders need to check every day they need to sit at those values look at those values not just post them for everyone else to look at and say job done they need to be looking at those values and saying am i living and breathing and embodying those values am i because if i don't set the message of this positive culture that I'm telling everyone, you know, people who visit the organization, et cetera, or, you know, et cetera, and, you know, the partners telling them the culture that we have because it's all in writing and it's on posters. Am I genuinely convinced that we've got that 100% there? Because if you've got that culture there and, you know, um, and, and people are living by the values, as a senior leader, the people below you are going to look up and they're going to emulate your behaviors, mm-hmm. et cetera. And they're going to think, but also you can be there to, pull pull them in and say look you're stepping outside our organizational values or your culture with your behavior we need you to come back in because this isn't this is how our organization will flourish and everyone will grow and have the opportunity so those are really really important yeah i absolutely agree and i've been thinking a lot about many times i'll talk to a leader and they seem to be a good leader and they have values and they're um and this is what they want for the people. And then I happen to know people in their organization. And I think, well, it's not trickling down. And yeah. I think that one thing that leaders need to do is not only live it, but realize it's not being lived someplace in their organization because people are people for, for whatever reason. But know that you're shoot for 100 percent because I think we should shoot for 100 percent, but realize we're not there yet. We have room to grow. And so I think leaders need yeah. to be curious as to where those holes are so that they can fill them instead of saying we're a great culture. Everybody's doing this. What we want, we want to be better than we were yesterday. Where are those holes so that we can fix those and we can encourage people and model this good behavior? Yeah. And it's about self-awareness. Yes. It's, you know, leaders having that self-awareness and they have to have that self-awareness is, is the message that I'm driving out actually getting through to people? Am I communicating? How am I, how am I again, um, impacting on those people? And I'm not saying, you know, could my self-awareness be harmful because yes, it could be, but you know, especially if you're trying to live and breathe that culture is, do I have that self-awareness that I'm, I'm getting that message across to everyone. Is everyone taking in my communication, et cetera, and understanding what I'm saying? Or do I have to reflect about how I re-deliver that message? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting with leaders is p- 
people as they progress i'm not saying all leaders so if anyone's listening to this in their leadership session and they're saying it's not me i i can understand that i've seen really really good senior leaders with self-awareness but i think it's it's quite common for people as they become you know rise through the hierarchy and become more senior in leadership positions that they lose self-awareness as they become more confident mm. and then when they get right to the top it's you know well we i must be right because i wouldn't have got where i am if i wasn't right and their confidence then curtails any self-awareness and that becomes quite harmful then because people look up and think well they don't understand us yeah you know really really important to if, in, as a leader doesn't matter how high you go to just gra- grasp that self-awareness and know how important it is for your interactions with everyone else Yes, absolutely. So Jonathan, as we leave, if somebody is having an issue or they feel like they are they are or they are being bullied at work, is there a resource or something that you can direct them to? Um, I would say there's a couple of places. I would look at Dr. Gary Namey, um, who runs the work bullying workplace bullying foundation in the US. So Gary Namey and his wife Ruth have written written some books. Um he's he's a psychologist and has written some really really good books and he's run courses and a lot of people who you know now counsel targets of workplace bullying in in the US and in Canada have been on those courses. There's a book called Bull, uh, Bullyology and the Bullied Mind um, those are books to look at. What I would say to anyone who's been bullied if they feel they've been bullied the most important thing is start recording what's happening. And I'm not saying necessarily getting a tape, you know, a, a microphone out, but just start making notes of incidents when they've happened, you know, timed and dated so that you've got that that record. Don't leave it if you're in an office, don't leave it at work, take it home with you, but just keep that record because there may come a time when there's a, you know, um, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. And if you can just say, yes, you did, yes, you did, but you haven't written any notes about it, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, so do start keeping a record for starters. Um, Great. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. It's nice, nice chatting. Thank nice, you. Nice chatting yeah. with you too. Bye-bye. See you, Mary. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Jonathan, for speaking with us today on Conflict Managed. If you are suffering from being bullied at work, I have put those recommendations from Jonathan into the show notes so that you can take a look at, at those authors and those books. And I wish the absolute best for you. Please take care of your psychological and physical health. Where you work is temporary, but what we really need is for you to be healthy in mind and body. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. If you are interested in little tips on how to address workplace conflict, you can follow me on TikTok at 3P Conflict Restoration. If there's anyone you would like to see interviewed on Conflict Managed or any topics you would like to see addressed, please let us know. You can email us at 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.